let's be seated and let's pray. Lord, we, we lift your name on high because you came so far to rescue us. Thank you for the journeys you made for our sake. You came from heaven to earth. You came from conception to birth. You came through the years of growing up into adulthood and understanding and maturity. You came into the water of baptism, standing alongside sinful people for us. You went through the wilderness of testing for us. You came into the villages and the fields, teaching, telling stories, healing, confronting, discipling, making God and his kingdom known. You came to Jerusalem. You came to the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating and struggling and agonising. You came stumbling under a cross to Calvary. You came into the grave and you rose victorious. Lord, you pitched your tent and you lived among us. Thank you for your courage, for your compassion, for your faithfulness, for your questioning religious traditions and certainties. Thank you for embracing our sorrow and our pain and our sinfulness. Thank you for your truthfulness. Thank you for the example you've set us of how to walk, how to face each stage of life and challenge as it comes. How to know what we need to finish and how to entrust you with what is not finished. And Lord, you know where we are. Some of us are at times of change and transition. We don't know what lies ahead. Changing school. Approaching retirement. Beginning a new relationship. Moving house. Applying for a new job. Facing a difficult decision. Thank you that wherever we find ourselves today, we can trust you because you are God with us. You are God for us. And so for those of us in the depths of grief, God, would you meet with us today? For those of us in anguished questioning, God, meet with us today. Those of us in trembling doubt and uncertainty, God, would you meet with us today? For those of us who find ourselves in darkness, God, meet with us there today. And for those of us who have just been waiting for a long, a long time for something to happen, God, meet with us today. Thank you that when we call on you in the day of trouble, you deliver us. And so we call on you today. You are with us as we trust. You are with us when we waver. And you're with us as you bring us to the place of trust again. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Amen. We're going to sing together the hymn, God of Grace and God of Glory. And as we do so, pray for our, God's blessing upon our children as they go upstairs to BRBK. Have a great time up there. God bless you. God of Grace and God of Glory.
Our reading this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. You'll be aware, if you've been coming regularly over the past months, that we've been working our way through 2 Corinthians. We follow Paul's ups and downs with the church. He's agonising over them. His, his gratitude that there's been some degree of reconciliation after a past falling out. His, his inviting them to contribute to the offering he's taken to Jerusalem. His, his gratitude and anticipation of that. Chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, we, we come to a very, very different note. It's like he's suddenly lost his temper, something snapped. He's had enough and he just lets it all go. This is an outpouring in these final chapters of grief and anger and pain. And, and people debate about why it is that having been as nice as pie when he's asking for them for money, he suddenly gives them both barrels at the end of the, end of the book. And some people think he's been kind of storing up all the stuff he really wants to get off his chest until the end for maximum effect. Others, like me, uh, think possibly this is actually a, the, the tearful letter that he refers to earlier. This has just been tacked on the end of 2 Corinthians 1 to 9, and this is what he wrote at an earlier stage. If that discombobulates you, I'm sorry, uh, but I th- it doesn't materially affect uh, the content of those chapters, but it just gives you an idea of how I'm going to interpret them. I've been in a state of some concern over the past months, wondering whether I'm going to come across something that changes my view of these final chapters, and I haven't yet. So I'm going to run with the view that I have, and if you want to argue with me about it, you are welcome to do so. But 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, Paul says this, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness in such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So what's going on here? Paul was under attack. Every pastor gets it sometimes. People in Corinth were grumbling and complaining about him. They were running him down. They accused him of being weak. They said that when he was writing them a letter from a safe distance, then he spoke with authority. But meet him face to face, he cut an unimpressive figure, coming across as weak, unable to stand up for himself. And it was this discrepancy between what he was like in the flesh, face to face, and the airs he assumed when he was writing letters that lay behind some of the criticisms he faced. And Paul was stung by this. So I'll tell you that, that while I was away over half term, uh, my mind was, this was David's fault, preaching on, on uh, Paul a couple of weeks ago before I went away. I was turning Paul's ministry over in my mind. How does Acts relate to Galatians? And I didn't have books to read. She, she was very patient with me while my mind was elsewhere. But one of the things that struck me was that one of the reasons why Paul was so upset by the Corinthians and so vulnerable to their attacks was that he spent so long there. He loved them from the bottom of his heart. When he went to other cities, he might stay there for a few weeks and get the church started, leave one or two people behind to get things up and running, and then he was off, driven by the Holy Spirit to go somewhere else to preach the gospel there as well. But in Corinth, Luke tells us he spent 18 months there. That was a long time to spend in one place for Paul. That's long enough to forge some pretty deep relationships. And that's why when they turned on him, it hurt quite as much as it did. Because he'd invested so much in this congregation and it all come back badly. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 10-13, to Paul, we find Paul pouring out his grief 
and his anger and his pain to them in what he describes elsewhere as a tearful letter. And let me just reassure you, there is nothing autobiographical in this in terms of my relationship with Brighton Road. In case people are thinking, ooh, this is not where I'm coming from. I don't find myself in Paul's shoes in any way at this point, just in case anyone's got any anxious secrets about it. And yet for all that, for all the kind of personal interaction between Paul and the church, it's apparent that Paul is convinced that behind the scenes there was something spiritual going on. He was under spiritual attack from those who should have been his closest supporters. In the ancient world, the idea that human beings were vulnerable to being manipulated by hostile spiritual forces was a very real one. There was a high degree of anxiety about how to keep on the right side of the gods because they were actually quite capricious and hostile and people had no sense of being in control and a lot of time was, what, what can we do to placate the gods that are in charge of our lives? And the God of Jesus Christ is not like that at all. But Paul was aware of the existence in reality as well as in the mindset of spiritual powers that could wreak havoc in people's lives. For Paul, the, the demons were sufficiently real and sufficiently dangerous for him to warn the Corinthians that they had no business taking part in sacrificial worship in a pagan temple. There were those who were kind of supremely confident. Well, there's only one God, the rest of it's rubbish. We don't need to bother about these spiritual beings at all. There's only one real God. And Paul says, yeah, okay, but nevertheless, you are placing yourselves in a vulnerable position spiritually if you go and participate in a pagan worship service in the temple. Don't do it. Don't open yourselves up to those influences. He says, in the past, you were led astray, in whatever way, to dumb idols. When Luke summarises Paul's gospel message in Acts, alongside the good news of the forgiveness of sins, he includes turning from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. In Thessalonians, he talks about uh, being delivered from idols and turning to God. Christ liberating people from spiritual oppression was part of the good news that Paul proclaimed. And he was aware that there was a spiritual battle going on wherever he went and whenever he preached. He was conscious of that dimension. He wrote to the, the believers in Thessalonica about how Satan was frustrating his plans to visit them. He wrote to the Corinthians about how the God of this world had blinded the minds of unbelievers to stop them seeing the light of the image of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So yes, Paul's gospel was about, yeah, being put right with God. It was about that the hope of resurrection. There was also this dimension about being set free from the spiritual control of whatever powers were around in that time. And whenever Paul proclaimed the gospel and someone came to Christ, he saw that as taking ground from the enemy. He was engaged in a spiritual battle. And that's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 he talks about fighting in a war, about using God's powerful weapons to demolish strongholds, talks about taking prisoners as he brings every thought into subjection to Christ. For him, the spiritual dimension that perhaps we might be inclined to ignore all too easily in our fairly materialistic worldview, that dimension was very real and very significant. And behind those who criticised him, Paul discerned a spiritual attack on himself and his ministry. The real enemy was not those in the congregation who were gunning for him. The real enemy was the spiritual forces behind them that was putting those thoughts and ideas into their minds and alienating him from them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 5, Paul talks about destroying strongholds and arguments and every arrogant obstacle that's raised up against the knowledge of God. Why should an argument need to be destroyed like an enemy stronghold? One reason is that all too often people believe not what is true, but what they want to believe. 
So using logic, you might present a powerful case that someone's argument or viewpoint is wrong, but if they don't want to change their minds, however persuasive your logic might be, they ain't going to do it. Because we are too invested in what we believe and think. Sometimes Paul could see that people were trapped in intellectual prisons of their own making. And before they would be prepared to change their minds, the walls of those prisoners, though the walls of those prisons needed to be destroyed, and where spiritual powers were keeping them prisoned by bolstering their irrational loyalty to specious arguments, those powers needed to be defeated. Whenever he preached the gospel, there was this dimension going on because people were engaged in pagan worship. Now, I accept 21st century Horsham. Much of this could sound quite foreign and old-fashioned and disturbing to those of us who embrace a wholly rational view of reality, who are a bit sceptical about anything we cannot see or touch. But the truth is that an entirely rational worldview cannot encapsulate every dimension of reality. There is stuff out there that doesn't fit within a materialistic, rationalistic view of the world. So yes, we are rational beings, but let's recognise that rationality has its limits. And it can take a healthy dose of humility to recognise that there is stuff out there that doesn't easily fit in with our own world view. And let's as well, alongside with that humility, recognise that um, confidence in what we think we know can be entirely misplaced. There is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which kind of links how much we know with our degree of confidence in, in what we know. And uh, if we don't know very much, our confidence is really, really high. And, and the more we get to know, the less confidence we have about what we know, until we start to get a degree of expertise, and then our confidence begins to increase again. That's a recognised feature of the learning process. Uh, the more ignorant you are, the more confident you are, is the bottom line. The more you begin to know, the less confident you become. So the learning process can actually be quite unsettling. We talk about this to our students at the London School of Theology. The less you are aware of your own incompetence, the more likely you are to inflate your assessment of your own abilities. I can do this. Anybody could do this. It's easy. Well, actually, maybe. It's dead simple. Well, actually, no, it isn't. It's the ignorant person who dismisses ideas out of hand. The more you grow in understanding, the more complicated things appear and the less confident you become until you start to reach a real level of expertise. So that's why it's so much easier just to shut your eyes against Christianity. Because the, the most confident you are about dismissing it out of hand is when you know comparatively little about it. That's the easiest time to say, Phew, it's rubbish. The more you start to look into it, the more you start to wonder, oh, actually, is, is there actually something there after all? And let's face it, when it comes to deciding whether to believe in Jesus or not, a lot hangs on that. Because if it's all true, if Jesus really is Lord, then the implications of that are life-changing at every level. You can't say Jesus is Lord and just carry on as if nothing's different. Everything changes. So people have a vested interest, actually, in pushing it away and keeping it at arm's length. And Paul saw spiritual powers encouraging them and enabling to do that. Far easier simply to say, I don't believe. And when we have that mindset, no amount of intellectual persuasion will get people to change their mind. And that's why for Paul, part of proclaiming the gospel was smashing the fallacious and deceptive reasoning that was imprisoning people in ignorance. That's why it's much easier just to dismiss what other people are saying out of hand if we don't agree with them, rather than engaging in it. Because we are most confident when we don't listen. And so yes, for Paul, it was a fight. And behind the Corinthians' attack on him, he was inclined to see spiritual powers at work as well there. They were attacking him at a human level, 
But Paul discerns that Satan is behind their attack. Earlier in the letter, he talks about how Satan is at work to exacerbate conflict within the church. There'd been this major falling out, this big confrontation, and then you know, the church had, had turned on the person who'd confronted Paul and said, no, you were wrong, we're going to punish you. And Paul says, look, forgive him. Don't hold it against him. We are not unaware of Satan's designs, he says, because he knew that the devil wanted to sow conflict and dissension and trouble and anguish within the life of the church. Let's be aware of this, he said. We're not just, not just operating at a human level here. Let's be aware of the spiritual agenda that is happening when relationships within the church come under strain. And that's why things like half-truths and rumours and speculation and gossip and personal attacks they're damaging at the best of times, but within a church they are catastrophic. Because within a church there are powers at work to exploit these things to their maximum effect. So be careful what you say, how you say it, who you say it to. Be careful when you hear something that you don't know whether it's true or not. Don't assume that it is and think the worst of people. Because there are powers at work to exploit such damaging things to their maximum effect. It's not that we're puppets in the hands of spiritual powers. Definitely not for Christians. But let's be aware that there are spiritual powers that are always happy to exploit our natural human weaknesses. So place us in a stressful situation where the cortisol starts flowing and people will say and do whatever it takes to protect or defend themselves. And then the cracks start to spread. So just be aware that if something you say or do can be misinterpreted or taken the wrong way, then there are forces at work to ensure that that will happen and to make it as damaging as possible. So grace and truth characterise Jesus. They need to characterise us as well in all our dealings with each other as Paul wanted those qualities to characterise his relationship with the church at Corinth. I don't know what you make of any of this. Some of you will think, yes, this is vital. Others of you may be sceptical about this whole spiritual fifth dimension thing. And I'm not bothered about that, actually. Paul talks about having powerful weapons at his disposal, but doesn't specify what they are in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But if we turn to that well-known armour of God passage in Ephesians 6, we can see clearly enough what Paul has in mind there. And whether you believe or not that you are involved in a daily struggle against the principalities and cosmic powers in the heavenly places, the, the dark rulers of this present world, the qualities symbolised and represented by the different parts of our spiritual armour are still vital for us to embrace on a daily basis. And whether you're conscious that you're in a fight or not, this is how we need to live as people of integrity who belong to Jesus. So take to arm you for the fight, truth, honesty, integrity, right living, doing the right thing, behaving the right way in a world gone wrong. A readiness to share God's good news of peace and to bring that peace into situations of conflict, damage and harm. Faithfulness, staying the course, being true to God, and to each other. And as well, a recognition that you are on the winning side in the battle to set people free. The gospel is the good news for the salvation of anyone who believes. And the victory has been won for us by Jesus Christ already. Oh, and don't forget prayer on a daily basis. These are the kind of weapons that we can effectively deploy against spiritual strongholds. These are the qualities we are called to embrace 
as believers in terms of how we live our lives on a daily basis. And remember, we only stand firm on the evil day if we embrace these qualities ourselves and if we stand together and we defend one another. And remember too, that you are on the winning side because you belong to Jesus. And he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for you. He has chosen you. He's called you. He's cleansed you. He's redeemed you. You belong to him. And he will keep you faithful to the end until the day comes when God wipes every tear from every eye. And between now and then, there will be struggle, there will be heartache, there will be grief, there will be trouble, sometimes from outside the church, sometimes from within the church. But God will get you there. And as we look forward to that day, and as we wait for the coming of Jesus, we celebrate our fellowship together in broken bread and poured out wine. The body of Christ, broken for us. Identifying with us in all our brokenness and incompleteness. Taking our sins, our griefs, our sorrows, our pain upon himself. We're not perfect. He is. And he gave his life for us. We recognise that as we share in the bread. His blood poured out. The blood that cleanses, redeems, purifies, forgives, brings life sign of God's ownership upon us. We share in the wine together as well. And we come not because we're good enough, but because none of us is. This is the place where God meets us all in grace and in love and in mercy. One way or another, we've all failed him and each other. One way or another, we're all broken. One way or another, none of us is worthy by how we live. Our worthiness is only in God's love, which is given to us freely, generously, and faithfully, and graciously through his Son, Jesus Christ. So we come in humility, and we share in the bread and wine as people who need forgiveness from God and from each other, healing for our brokenness and a renewing of our commitment to each other and to him and to his work. And if you come with a sense of need, you are welcome. Because the Christian faith is about God meeting us in our need and giving us a saviour. And I don't know whether you have a strong faith or a weak faith or, or whatever this morning, but if you want to put whatever faith you have, however small or insignificant that might be, you want to put it in Jesus, then this meal is for you. Because he gave his life for you. And he wants you to put whatever trust you have in him. So as we prepare to come and share communion together, let's sing, Behold the Lamb.
And we do this because Jesus, on the night before he died, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to those who were with him and said, Take, eat. This is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, thank you that you held nothing back when you entered this world, when you went to Calvary. You loved us to the uttermost and that love cost you your life. We think of your body, the way in which you were present in the world throughout your mortal life and that body crushed and broken and destroyed on the cross. Think of your blood circulating in your veins, keeping you alive, that blood poured out through whipping the crown of thorns, the nails, shed to bring us life through your death. It's a mystery. But thank you for being our saviour. For entering into our humanity, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our mortality and redeeming us and making us God's children <coughs> giving us life forgiveness love peace you've done it all for us Jesus and our part is simply to worship and thank you and eat the bread and drink the wine as a way of Saying, Jesus, you are my saviour. You gave your life for me. I give my life back to you. Amen. So the body of Christ was broken for you. You are welcome to share in the bread as it is distributed, and we eat the bread as we receive it. At the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for you. This cup represents his blood shed for you to bring you forgiveness and life. We keep the cup so that we can drink together as a sign of our fellowship with one another.
Christ gave his life for you. Christ gives his life to you. Thanks be to God. The cup of blessing which we bless is in order sharing together in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is in order sharing together in the body of Christ. So we who are many are one body because we've all shared in the one loaf. Can I invite you to spend just a couple of moments praying for members of the fellowship who need the grace and love of Christ at this point in time. You might want to mention just the name out loud. Otherwise at home or here, feel free to pray quietly. But let's pray for each other. And if you want to mention someone's name, then please feel free to do so in this moment or two. Lord, may your grace be enough for them, we pray. Amen. Stand and sing together. My heart is filled with thankfulness. Just to alert you, this is not the end of the service. Okay, I know you're going to be thinking, we're going to be finishing. There is another prayer to follow this. This is not the end of the service. Let's stand and sing. My heart is filled with thankfulness. Please be seated and let's pray. Lord, our heart is filled with thankfulness for all that you have done for us, all that you mean to us, all that we realise we mean to you. And we ask that you would enable us to live lives characterised by thankfulness. Inspire us to live for you. As we search, help us to discover more of you and new truths. 
As we listen, may we hear you speaking to us. As we look for you, would you reveal yourself to us? As we breathe, may we be conscious of your life-giving spirit infusing us. Thank you that you came to us even when we didn't know we were in need. And thank you that you have never excluded us, you've never neglected us, you've never abandoned us, you have never rejected us, and you never will. Thank you that you know what we need without our needing to explain it to you. Thank you that in life and in death, you are our God. And we can trust you to be with us. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. For the prospect of resting in peace and rising in glory in your presence. Lord, you are worth it. Because you are an understanding and compassionate God far beyond our deserving, our imagining and our understanding. We bless you. And forgive us for those times when we, we limit you. When we try and shut off the flow of your spirit or forget just how much you love us. Forgive us when we lapse into futile, self-defeating cycles of despair. Forgive us when we hurt others because we're hurting ourselves. Forgive us when we feel that we are beyond repair or redemption. Lord, come near to us. Lay your hands afresh upon us. And say, my beloved child, I forgive you. I love you. Go in peace. So Holy Spirit, would you fire up your pilot light within us again. Come alive with us in a fresh way with new warmth and energy. Mended and hopeful. Direct us in your paths of peace. For we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. Now we close. Let's stand and sing King of Kings, Majesty.
And let's commend each other to God in that commitment we've just made as we share in the words of the grace together. Amen.